Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jim Fredericks, and I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Brittany Campbell and Mike Bentley. Very nice. Uh, we're also joined today by a very special guest, AJ Trelevin. Uh, AJ, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Before we dive into today's um, science, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Tell us about Sprague. We would love to, to hear about that. We'd love to hear the stories of the industry. So uh, talk to us. Yeah, so... Sprague Pest Solutions. We're based here in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, we're going on our 90, well, almost to 97 years uh, in the industry. Uh, I'm fourth generation. So it goes all the way back to uh, the original owner was W.B. Sprague, uh, purchased by my great-grandfather during the Great Depression. It was, a, I think it was a Model A uh, Ford truck uh, and some equipment that he bought at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of from there, it's been a family business all the way through. So I uh, worked out of my great grandpa's garage. Uh, his house literally is a block from where I live now. Um, uh, you know, and kind of has, as we've gone through the generations, it's grown uh, most significantly through Alfie and Larry, the, you know, our previous generation, our G3, as we call them, we're G4. Uh, I work with two of my cousins, Ross and Paul, uh, in the business and uh, just continuing on that legacy of great service for commercial clients. We're commercial only as a pest control uh, with a huge focus on third-party audit, the food industry, what we call a seed to spoon. So all the way from the field to where it's served, um, we work all the way through that chain. So uh, cover, we have offices in eight of the Western states and cover two more through, through subs and various uh, work through that. So kind of Canadian border, Mexican border, and then as far uh, east is Colorado. So that's, that's our footprints um, and that we, that we currently occupy. That's cool. I had no idea that it was fourth generation. Mm-hmm. I somehow was thinking it was third generation. So fourth generation, 97 years. That's, that is really pretty amazing. And, um, you know, I, and that also gives our listeners a little bit of information about where the name Sprague came from. Yes because that could be a mystery if you don't, uh, if you don't know that history. And that's actually a pretty fun kind of origin story. So uh, the company was actually started in Spokane, uh, which is in Eastern Washington, right? Kind of on the Idaho border. But again, back in 1926, um, the, the two partners uh, decided to expand because they wanted to get over to the port cities in Western Washington, but communication, you know, telegraph was a pretty hard way to run business. So they decided to just split it into two companies, WB Sprague, took the part in Western Washington, the other owner kept it in Eastern Washington. Um, and it was kind of a great story because about, well, oh, maybe 50, 60 years later, we ended up acquiring the other half uh, of what was the original Sprague. So we, we brought it all back together later on in life. Bring it full circle. Yeah. Pretty cool. It, now, AJ, you mentioned that it's, you know, largely focused on commercial pest control. And I remember one time I was talking to Larry and he was explaining to me that you have some pretty unique clients that have some pretty unique services and how they handle food. Some of those fishing clients that yeah. the boats may be stationed offshore for a long period of time. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Cause he didn't really dive into it. And I, I still can't wrap my head around how you're providing pest management services on a fishing vessel that's staged offshore. Yeah. I mean, so those are food processors, right? So um, when you talk about 
the large fish processors, they'll take a boat that's, you know, 180 feet long. Um, and it's an entire food processing plant within it so that they'll go up, um, you know, out of Dutch Harbor and out into the Bering Sea. And they're going to onload. They're going to essentially the fishing vessels are offloading onto that ship. They're filleting, processing, flash freezing. And then it comes off the boat as frozen, ready to be shipped out and off it goes. Right. So um, because the time in the Bering Sea is so long to steam, they're actually actually just putting it from one boat to another boat processing it all, freezing it, and then they're going to offload in larger quantities that way. So we actually, yeah, so we, I didn't say we would cover Alaska, but we do go to Alaska to consult for all of them. We actually have Jeff Weir, who many of, I think all of you know, um, is, uh, is up there right now. And, and these are, these are places where you're going like, you know, one Island more is, is Russia. Um, so you take like, a flight from here to Alaska, then uh, Anchorage <clears throat> to Dutch Harbor, then Dutch Harbor on a little like 10 seater plane to get onto a helicopter to fly below the clouds and out to a place where you can't get to except for boat or helicopter. So, but when you think about some of those locations, they have the same challenges. I mean, what's funny is up there, they consider uh, in a lot of ways, like a bald eagle can be a pest or a nuisance pest because they're tearing apart your dumpsters because you can look out and see 15 of them in your dumpster pulling stuff apart. Um, so it's just a whole different environment, but they have the same stuff, right? Like when you've got a lot of people in confined spaces living there, you have nuisance pests, you've got, you know, you name it, it's, it's no different. So um, because a lot of that processing is based here in, in Washington and Oregon coast, um, you know, we kind of see full life cycle with them as, you know, the boats come down in the off season, we work on them, we get them ready to go up north. Um, we help consult with the stuff while it's up there. And, but again, it's, it's, we're willing to go wherever the client needs us to make sure that millions of people eat safer food and live and work in healthier environments. It, you know, just because you're on a remote island doesn't mean you don't have issues and you don't need stuff taken care of. Um, we have to be able to serve clients wherever they are. That's, that's really, uh, I mean, it really is amazing to hear these stories, but it's not just like this, like far outreaching, uh, you know, Alaskan islands in the, in the Bering Sea. Um, Sprague is also a, a leader, all, you know, obviously it's a 10 states servicing some of the largest cities, um, you know, some of the food processors and, and, uh, and food facilities that all of us are familiar with. Um, and in addition to all that, um, your company has been a leader, uh, uh, held leadership roles in NPMA and has been involved in, in all kinds of things. So we appreciate all of that um, from you and from Sprague. Uh, so really great stuff. And we're happy you're here today. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, that's, that's something that uh, I appreciate that generationally, we believe that this industry is an amazing place and that, uh, you know, the higher regard we hold ourselves with as an industry, uh, the more valuable we are to the greater public uh, and, and the difference that makes, when we're talking about the jobs that can create the impact that we can have, all of those things flow from a strong sense of self and worth within the industry and amongst our peers and amongst the people that we work with. Yeah. yeah I just want to <clears throat> echo the, you know, Jim's comment, you know, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And people probably don't know how little information or warning we give you for what you're kind of getting into when you agree to be on the podcast episode. <laughs> Um, so with very little preparation, you just agreed to be on here to do this. So I'll give you a quick rundown of some of the rules that we try to do our best not to break and kind of what you could expect and essentially what we're about to subject you to. Uh, but if you have any questions, let me know. So uh, 
basically each one of us are going to take about five minutes to go through and provide our best summary of whatever news headline or research discovery that's taken place over the last month or two. Um, after each one of us finishes, we'll pause. We'll have some time for questions. If you have any, we'll go through and have a little bit of discussion about the article, if there is any. Take but some ultimately, notes. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, at the end, you get the opportunity to decide which one of us is the winner. The only you can you can judge that any way you see fit. The only rule that we have is that you don't tell us who the worst was. Um, so you can you can pick the winner. You are not allowed to identify the other in any individual loser that lost the most. You can only pick who won the most. And uh, so the way that we normally do this um, is whoever won last time has to go first. And for the first time ever, we have a back-to-back -back reigning champion. And that is uh, Dr. Brittany Campbell is nerd queen, two episodes in a row. So she's going to be leading off. Um, and in true professional fashion, the way that we determine who goes second and third, because what we found is going last is usually the best place to be in is a, a very competitive game of rock, paper, scissors. Mm. And I crushed Jim's hopes and dreams uh, <laughs> a couple minutes before we started this. I will be going in last place. Jim will be going second. So we're going to start with Brittany and we'll go Jim and then me. So how's that sound? Sounds great. I feel like you're setting me up for all kinds of bias based on the order there. So I was about to say, like, I don't think you needed to say back to back. AJ, do not let that like change your like oh Britney's wins too much like that's just standard for me so <laughs> you know I just you just do the right thing and follow your gut AJ, I, I think that Mike right set it up like as bad as possible for himself he's like we found out the best spot to be is last place well now I'm thinking okay I can't <laughs> pick him in last yeah yeah right. it's now and you can't pick Britney she's won five so it has to be Jim yeah we've got it you need to adjust that Mike. podcast over Jim wins <laughs> I'm going to be editing all of this out of the podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So are you guys ready for me to take it away and get started here? Can't wait. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm going to get my stopwatch reset and I'm going to start with the very exciting title, AJ. I've got a five minute hourglass right here. So I'm ready. Oh my gosh. Don't do that. I get stressed out so easily. Okay. Wait, you can't start until. already going. Hold on. Okay. This, all right. Let me this is very stressful. Down. It is. All right. So the title of my paper is Field Analysis of Biological Factors Associated with Sites at High and Low to Moderate Risk for Eastern Equine Encephalitis Virus Winter Activity in Florida. It was published in April in the Journal of Medical Entomology by some researchers out of the University of South Florida, Southern Florida, South Florida. All right, so since you're in the Western United States, I already didn't do a great job picking the particular virus here because um, this virus, uh, it, the Eastern Equine Encephalitis virus, uh, from now on, I'm just gonna call it triple E, that's a mouthful, uh, is an infection of the brain. Many people suffer from severe neurological disease when infected if they actually happen to survive triple E. About 30% of the people infected with this virus do die from it. And of those that do survive, about 50% continue to have long-term brain dysfunction like seizures, paralysis, intellectual issues, and personality disorders. And they may require long-term care 
And also they may die within a few years if they do happen to survive, if they have these severe neurological issues. Unfortunately, there is no treatment or antiviral for this virus, uh, but thankfully the virus is rare in humans and accounts for about 11 cases typically per year. But in 2019, there were actually 38 cases of this virus throughout the Eastern United States and uh, the Gulf Coast. Um, and 50% of those cases in 2019 were actually fatal. So it's a pretty serious disease if you happen to get it. The primary vector of triple E is the black-tailed mosquito uh, called Culicida nera, if I'm saying that right. And the primary idea of this mosquito, the reason why we don't actually have more cases is because it breeds in wetlands and swampy areas. And so obviously those areas aren't really inhabited by humans, but when people do visit those areas, uh, they obviously increase their risk of potentially getting this virus. Uh, and so while the mosquito transmits the virus, Birds act as an important reservoir. So for those of you, if you don't know what a reservoir is, it essentially means that birds can hold this virus, amplify it, grow it, it'll multiply in birds. And then of course, when the mosquitoes go to feed on birds, they then get the virus and then transmit it to humans. So birds play an important role in the transmission of this virus. So for this particular paper, the scientists wanted to evaluate the habitat of these mosquitoes and figure out where in the world are these mosquitoes. Um, but we already know they're in swampy wetlands. But they wanted to really study the mosquitoes in winter months when it gets colder in Florida. Uh, so they chose sites that would mostly be at high risk of these mosquitoes. So they either were um, had tree plantations or swampy wetlands, and they evaluated the mosquito populations throughout the winter. Then they took the mosquitoes, did some DNA analysis, and determined whether or not they actually had the virus in their stomach. So if they had blood fed um, the prevalence of this particular virus. Uh, not surprisingly, like most mosquito species, their populations boom in the late summer. We see that everywhere, right? Um, but they are capable of overwintering in Florida. And why this is really important for the rest of the United States is because even though these mosquitoes overwinter in Florida, they bite, imagine birds migrate, right? Down to Florida when it gets colder, they then bite these birds and then the birds get the virus and then they migrate back to the north. And so they think that this is really important for the transmission of this virus in more northern states or the birds are actually migrating and causing this virus to continue to, you know, replicate and be an issue in the north. Uh, so the researchers found that during the dry Florida winter, tree holes still hold water. And so even though, um, you know, the population's declining, the researchers' thoughts are, okay, we figured out there's all these tree holes. We're seeing a lot of mosquitoes. And these mosquitoes will breed in these tree holes in early spring. And this is really what is causing a population boom. So they figure out tree holes in these tree plantations is playing an, an important role. And so... Their goal, and why I particularly liked this paper is because the very last sentence, field experiments testing the efficacy of these measures are currently underway. So instead of saying, oh, the next step is to treat these tree holes in the winter, these scientists are already like, hey, we figured out that these, floor, these mosquitoes are playing an important role. If we can treat these tree holes, when, instead of like mosquito populations when there's thousands, when there's just a few hundreds, we can target these mosquitoes and these tree holes in the winter. We might can totally break the cycle and really reduce, you know, triple E in the north before birds migrate. Um, so it's super interesting. We should actually have real data soon uh, 
about whether or not we can knock these mosquitoes out early. Nice. All right, I saw you with the timer. I think I went for and I'm sweating now, AJ. <laughs> by like ten, <laughs> by like ten grains of sand. <gasps> this is this is very stressful. It's the first time our guest has ever brought their own timer you to know, the show. I actually someone set this on my desk the other day, and I was like, why would I need a five minute timer? And this is like the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that- yeah, premonition there. I will I will tell you as an additional handicap for us, w- one thing that we try to do is read the article title of every sa- every one of these. And the title sometimes can be very long. So we made a standing rule and amongst ourselves early on, we won't start the timer until after we finish the title, just because the titles can be such a mouthful that that could eat up your entire five minutes sometimes. Okay, but AJ started it before my title. So now you guys have to do what AJ does. Okay, I, I, I'll, okay. <laughs> I'm starting Mike's right now and it's not even his turn. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jim. All right. So my, uh, my, my paper, my research is titled laboratory and field evaluations of food based attractants for monitoring German cockroaches. Uh, This work was performed at Rutgers university and Changlu Wang's lab. And it will be published in an upcoming edition of the Journal of Economic Entomology. In this study, the researchers were interested in identifying effective, relatively inexpensive, readily available attractants for German cockroaches. As as you know, AJ, uh, sticky traps are the workhorse of IPM, and they're used widely across the industry to monitor lots of different urban pests in a wide range of accounts. But unfortunately, sticky traps without an attractant or a lure or a bait can only catch cockroaches when the pests happen to wander onto the track and become stuck. Uh, Of course, trap placement can help maximize the probability of cockroach encounters, but catch rates are still dependent on chance. Um, There are some commercial lures available, um, but the authors of this particular paper were interested in looking for cost-conscious alternatives that really worked to attract cockroaches. Now, one of the classic cockroach attractants that you'll find in any of the old school textbooks is the use of stale bread and beer um, uh, placed inside a mason jar as a cockroach trap. So with the prospects of learning about the hijinks that might have ensued at the Rutgers Urban Ent Lab while they were testing beers on cockroaches, I just like dove into this paper. Uh, But to my dismay, the, research, the researchers did not test beer styles as attractants. Instead, uh, they tested 18 different attractants that included things like fish oil, sugar cookie and root beer oils, synthetic German cockroach pheromones, peanut butter, cumin seed oil. So lots of these different attractants, 18 in fact. Now, this kind of led me on a rabbit trail um, to learn more about this attractant supplier, this oil supplier. And it turns out that you can find fragrance oils for more than 140 different smells on this manufacturer's website. And there's things like baby powder, birthday cake, churros. Uh, In fact, the description for bacon extract oil stated that it could be used as a cologne. Um, But I digress, right? Um, Essentially, what they did at Rutgers was they placed 500 cockroaches into an experimental arena. Uh, They introduced four different sticky traps into each one of these. And then after two days, compared the number of cockroaches caught on the traps containing attractants with uh, those that didn't. They also performed head-to-head tests between the different attractants. 
And here's what they learned. Uh, sticky traps that contained apple oil, blueberry oil, orange oil, or combinations of those. Sticky traps that contain fish oil, peanut butter, commercial roach lure tablets, or bacon extract had significantly higher catch rates than the unbaited traps in, uh, in, in the laboratory. Now, understanding that this is laboratory results and there's no competing, competing food sources, uh, the researchers put the most promising attractants to the test in the field in affordable housing apartments in Jersey City and Linden, New Jersey. Uh, and what they learned there was that on average, the combination of apple plus blueberry oil and the commercial roach lure tablet actually increased trap catch in infested apartments by 103%. Uh, and bacon extract increased catch rates by 92%. So those three were the, were the, the best. Um, blueberry oil, apple uh, plus blueberry a, oil, a commercial roach like, lure tablets, um, and bacon left extract. Or something in your um, timer? <laughs> they, uh, the, the authors did state that they need more research. Um, that needs to be performed in order to determine uh, you know, an accurate and reliable delivery method for the attractants. Um, but the bottom line is this. If you want to increase German cockroach catch rates and sticky traps, commercially available roach lure tablets or combinations of apple and blueberry oil are your best bet. Those perform the best. If you want to catch me in a sticky trap, try the bacon. That's it. Boom. Done early. And he read the title in that. Ah, see that? He's got, yeah, like I have to wait. Mike can't start because I got to <laughs> really? reset's not as easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like an iPhone. No. How's this work? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's it. I was going to say, AJ, if you have any questions, feel free to fire them off um, for Jim or for Brittany. I, I actually have a question, Jim. So did they mention what the roach lure tabs were? They did. Yeah, they're commercially available. They didn't say it's a food and pheromone attractant. So beyond that, I don't know. Uh, but they're commercially available through your uh, local distributor. Okay. And then did they say anything about what the ratio of the apple to blueberry oil mixture would be? I believe that was a 50-50 mix. Um, and these are in pretty small amounts. And I'm not... That was my question. Was like, how much, how much attractant are they putting on these? Um, you know, they're small amounts, and that's one of the problems with kind of knowing what that dose is. So, and that's what they're talking about. They need a reliable way to accurately, you know, place the right amount. So if it's like a drop, um, these are, these are essentially like drops, you know, people are using these for, um, uh, when making candles and crafts and, you know, you want to make your candle smell like a yeah. churro. They're essentially, they're essential oils, right? That's, that's what these are. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't, I, I, I could look it up. I don't know the exact amounts, but that is stated in, in the research paper. Was there anything about, I'm just curious, did, did adding oil to the glue board, did that change any of its stickiness or did that change the efficacy of the glue? They didn't note it, but I mean, that's like one of the things, right? If you're, if your neighborhood cat gets stuck in a glue board, then you're going to douse it with some vegetable oil and that's going to cut that glue. Um, so they did right. not state that. And so they're talking about small drops. And so there may be some decreased stickiness at the center of that blue board 
um, but it seemed like it wasn't enough to stop those those uh, cockroaches from getting trapped. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I've, I've seen it before too, where um, you can use kind of the the aroma of bacon. So like if you wanted, if you had a, a troublesome roof rat and they're eating bacon out of a place, um, you don't necessarily put bacon on it, but you cook bacon and then you suspend it over it and it will absorb the smell of bacon. So I'm wondering if there's a way one and there's glue traps that have scents, right. That you can buy commercially. So I'm wondering there's probably some way that they could impregnate the glue with, with scent if it makes it more uh, useful. Yeah, that's cool. That's the, and that's the idea here, right? Figuring out what are those, what are those, uh, those odors that are especially attractive to cockroaches or, and, and it could be what's that, what is that chemical component of that odor, especially attractive, um, but it's not surprising, right? Food odors. Um, I mean, bacon, I mean, been in plenty of apartments where there's grease all over the, the stovetop and cockroaches are just having a blast. Yeah, I know. I almost just expected it to be just oil in general because they, want the oil like they want the grease <laughs> i did have one question for Brittany. i didn't know we were allowed to ask questions so um this might be a west coast silly question uh based on gulf coast trees but what's a tree hole is that just like literally a hole in a tree full of water yeah so the paper actually went on to specify what the tree holes were and so typically when i think tree hole i'm thinking like I don't really know what creates tree holes typically, but like a large hole on the side of trees that you see. Um, so, I mean, often, yeah, like a, that a cartoony owl would live inside. <laughs> yes, but mosquitoes yeah. will breed in those. But for this particular paper, they were actually talking about like, you know, how when roots grow up around trees at the bottom, that will actually create like a little water pool as well. And so that seemed to be like a really specific breeding site for these mosquitoes. And so that's what gotcha. they partnered with um, like local mosquito control districts. And they're out like during the winter, they're going to start treating all those tree holes essentially to see if they can. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, it made me think I should definitely stay on the West Coast when you were going through all the symptoms. That was a cheery way to start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I really, you know, I try to scare people really bad first, just to, you know, get your attention. Reading nice. some of those symptoms, I started thinking, man, maybe some of my friends are afflicted with this <laughs> disease. They sound pretty similar. Yeah, my intellectual ability seems to decline, but that's probably due to yeah. um, my brewery visits. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's directly relational to your time on Zoom. So, <laughs> that too, yes. Throughout the day. Yeah. All right, Mike, you ready? All right, sure. All right, so before I uh, read the oh. title, I, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different than what we've done in the last couple episodes. So this is intended to be a podcast that covers both news and science discoveries. So I'm actually going to be talking about a science news headline for my piece um, and the, the important implications behind it and some of the science behind it rather than a discovery for this month. So the, the science news headline in general that I'm going to be talking about is the first open air release of genetically modified mosquitoes down in the Florida Keys. So in early May, the first round of genetically engineered 80s Egypti mosquitoes were released in the U.S., and they begun hatching down the Florida Keys. Now, Aedes aegypti, if you're not familiar, are the mosquitoes that are notoriously responsible for spreading a number of potentially deadly diseases, including Zika, dengue, chikungunya, and yellow fever. And the goal of this release was to use these engineered mosquitoes rather than traditional control methods to help curb the mosquito populations down in Florida. The mosquitoes came from a biotech company called Oxitech, 
that uh, they've been working to get this release approved for a number of years. Now, before I talk a little bit more about the OxyTech release, I want to do uh, give a little short overview of the technique that they're using and some of the science behind it. So the method is actually a broader control approach known as the sterile insect technique, or shortened as SIT. And it's actually been around since the 1930s. And the general principle and the, and the premise behind it is pretty simple. It's essentially you're sterilizing a large number of males of whatever target insect you're trying to control, releasing them out in the wild. And the hope is that those males will then outcompete other what they call wild type or unsterilized males for the ability to mate with a female. Those sterilized males mate with the female. If the female can't produce viable offspring, then the population steadily declines. Now, the way in which they've sterilized males has changed a lot over the years. Early methods commonly involved the use of radiation to be able to produce random genetic mutations in many cases that resulted in sterilization. The problem with that approach, though, is that it really limited how many insects, the types of insects they could apply that to. Because as you can imagine, radiation could be pretty degradous and pretty harmful to the insect. So if you're dealing with, let's say, a mosquito, it's a pretty delicate insect you're potentially affecting their ability to survive and their health when trying to outcompete other wild, healthy, non-irradiated males in the wild. So there were some limitations to how far they could go with this uh, radiation approach. But things took an exciting turn in the 80s when scientists found some pretty efficient ways to tweak the DNA of fruit flies, potentially opening doors for methods of genetic sterilization in the future. Fast forward a few decades to today, scientists now have a powerful line of very precise gene editing tools at their disposal to modify, delete, and replace individual genes to achieve specific outcomes. Now, for those OxyTech mosquitoes that I, I talked about earlier, they use a really specific and powerful gene editing tool called CRISPR. We won't get into what it does, but essentially they're able to introduce a genetic flaw into this line of 80s Egypti mosquitoes. And the flaw is really simple. Males were modified to uh, to carry a gene that makes their female offspring, so only the females, dependent upon the presence of an antibiotic tetracycline to survive. If it's not present when those offspring come out, the, offspring, the female offspring die. In the lab, they can be constantly supplied with this tetracycline to allow the, uh, the researchers to mass rear populations for release. But since tetracycline isn't present in the wild, female offspring then die off and the population is suppressed, making the process self-limiting. Now, this isn't the first time OxyTech has tried for this release. They've actually proven that this is a pretty successful method in the past, uh, where they released, where they went through multiple releases of populations in Brazil a few years back, and they showed that upwards or more than 90% of adult potential disease-carrying populations of babies that drip die uh, were in fact suppressed. And the biggest pushback, though, from getting this process approved in the U.S. They've been working for almost five years to get this approved, and that biggest pushback came from little, local citizens um, who did not want to allow this to happen in their backyards and their community. And in my opinion, it was because they fundamentally misunderstood the technology. And look, I get it. it this 100% sounds like something taken from a science fiction novel. You're dealing with genetically modified blood-sucking insects that are programmed to produce mutant offspring that are going to be released into someone's potential backyard, right? That all sounds terrifying. It's complicated science. And it, it sounds like it's opening Pandora's box because one really important thing with this technique is that it allows that genetic mutation to be passed down to the next generation. Earlier approaches meant that whatever change you did to that organism, it, it died whenever that organism died, but this could be passed on. So once it's released in the wild, there would be concern about how it could be potentially controlled, but there's a programmed die off with this because ultimately eventually you'll end up with just males and the population can't persist.
Now, luckily, the release was approved and Oxytech mosquitoes have started hatching in early May. So it's not going to be long before we get to actually see some hard data to show how successful the release really was. For me, what excites me the most with this technology is that it can be similarly applied to so many different other medically important arthropods that spread disease. Ultimately, this could completely and fundamentally change how we control pests like ticks, cockroaches, and flies in many years to come. And that's my review. First question uh, on what you're just talking about with the ability to pass on the genes. So uh, the genetically modified male mates, female mm -hmm. has eggs, the females die off that hatch, the males, that second generation males, do they then carry that gene on to exponentially yep. increase it in the gene pool? Yeah. So just like we it naturally pass on hereditary traits, some of those traits get passed on. So not every male is going to carry that gene, that mutated gene, because not every one of your offspring has all of the genes you pass on, right? We've got that 50% hereditary likelihood of, of uh, um, passing that on. So in this case, of the percentage of males, a certain percentage of those males would then also carry that on. Um, so you will have a percentage of males of the second generation that would then have that lethal gene, essentially, that they could then pass on that mutated gene that will then mean that all of their offspring that are females will not survive. So eventually over time, you would see an increase in the number of those adults that are that have this gene that would then affect the population and potentially get to the point to where either the population maintains at such a low supp suppressed level, or, I mean, in a perfect world, which this just wouldn't happen, you know, you have a situation in which it's only males left to reproduce and females that are there can't find enough viable mates. What's the ecological, like when you look at a, from a global ecosystem standpoint, to your point, like if you end up with only males, like what is the repercussion of not having mosquitoes though? That's, that's a great question. That's one of the biggest concerns that people have had is, Hey, look, we're talking about potentially wiping out this population here. So that's one of the really important advantages of this tool. So because one of the limiting factors is that it's only passed through sexual reproduction, you're not going to have this 80s Egypti mosquito start mating with other non-target species. Because even if they could, even if they did, they wouldn't be able to viably produce offspring. So it'd be impossible for them to pass on that gene. So that's one control mechanism right there. So it's a targeted application to a specific species that serves a marginal ecological benefit in specifically in that area too. So this isn't something that they're doing worldwide, but in areas where there's a human population at risk of disease transmission because of the effect of these mosquitoes, the, the benefits outweigh the cost in that case. Um, which is why, I mean, this is such a more advantageous application, right? We're not talking about just going in and blanketing an area with a product that would wipe out every single flying insect to preserve you know, human health and things like that. In some cases, that's absolutely necessary and very important to do. But with a tool like this, we can go in and selectively identify an individual species and target that species without impacting any other organism in the area. Yeah, you're, you're bringing the much more philosophical news, like uh, the, the undertones on this one are much higher. <laughs> Yeah, it, it took it took them five years of fighting. Um, I mean, the FDA and the EPA, they had to get approval there, but it was the local municipalities and uh, the local population, you know, citizens were just, you know, fundamentally misunderstanding the science. And one of their big concerns was that, you know, who are we to say that this population shouldn't be here? Well, 
it was it was much easier to gain traction when things like Zico were running rampant throughout South Florida and things like that. But now that we're seeing, uh, you know, some of these populations with disease transmission kind of trailing off, but they are starting to see disease pick up. So one of the things that they're excited to look at this year is because of how fast this can have an impact on uh, epidemiological impact, they're going to monitor for and see what the impacts of disease transmission are this season. So, And are they, are they measuring that through the reservoir populations like birds and things like that, or just through human cases? So they're certainly going to be monitoring human cases to see, but they also have some different areas, mosquito control districts in Florida. Some of them monitor for disease presence through uh, different methods. One of the methods is through what they call sentinel chickens. So they have chicken houses and chickens are commonly fed on by mosquitoes and they will sample those chickens on a pretty regular basis to detect the presence of any of these diseases. Um, so that's one method for monitoring. So don't but, eat those I mean, human eggs. cases most certainly are going to be, what's that? So don't eat the free eggs from those places. Those are <laughs> yeah. not farm fresh. That's awesome. I think, sorry, Brittany, I think you had a question. I have a question from a pure knowledge standpoint. AJ, you sent me down a, a tree hole here. I was like, okay, since you asked me how do tree holes develop? So I'm over here Googling while he's explaining hard mosquito stuff. So just for everyone, tree holes are natural occurrences that happen in older trees when limbs fall off and then bacteria gets in there, hollows it out more. So the tree holes with owls sticking out um, where mosquitoes will breed that capture water is um, from limbs falling off the trees. So now we know. Now, Dr. Campbell, your time has already passed. I would like that. <laughs> I found it interesting and I wanted to know why trees have holes. So just an extra tidbit there. I'm very interested in that tidbit. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> well, AJ, the time has come. The moment of truth. You've heard the three uh, science related news and research uh, explanations from uh, uh, our expert, Dr. Brittany Campbell and Mike, and then Mike and Jim. Uh, tell us. Your thoughts who should be crowned the bug nerd okay. winner for this month it's going to take a preamble because I'm, I'm still deciding in my head but Brittany, i appreciate uh I, I thought that was really interesting like just the way that they're looking at migration patterns migratory patterns of not of the target species but of the reservoir species to understand the spread and how you could again that fits right in with that's the pure purest form of IPM, right? Is root cause and finding the source. Uh, so that was really, really interesting. And I appreciate that one, Jim food attractants for roaches, German roaches. I mean, we spend so much of our time, uh, on German roaches, just they're, they're everywhere. They're a nuisance and you're right. There isn't, well, there's lots of control methods out there. You're right. The back, the backbone of, of German cockroach IPM is, is glue boards and finding ways to make those more effective, uh, is is a really really key to our industry um and then <laughs> mike there's so much you know uh philosophically theologically however you want to put it uh with the gmo mosquitoes but i'm also encouraged by the way that research is going and finding ways to i mean in a lot of ways it's like an igr an insect growth regulator on steroids right it's like it's like the next generation of igrs is actually not just changing them in a molting stage, but like editing the gene of a, of a pest to change its ability to reproduce. Um, 
which is mind blowing that that's a thing that we could do. It's also kind of terrifying that it's a thing that we can do. Um, and like who, who gets to, who decides, uh, (laughs) some of those things. Um, so, oh gosh. So it comes down to this and I am going to go with King or Queen Nerd is Mike. Mike, wow, <laughs> good job. All right, that means Mike's buying lunch today. <laughs> I think we take this entirely too seriously, but this has just totally made my weekend, AJ. I'm not going to lie. Well, that so. makes me feel worse, Mike. Now I know I've ruined two other people's weekends. No, no, no. no <laughs> they are a close second. Remember, we talked about this, AJ. They are a close second. It was very <laughs> it close. It is a very close second. Yep, right. yep. We are all winners here. Yep. Every, everybody gets a trophy. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes you to all bug nerds. presented amazing things and you made them understandable to me. So that is impressive in and of itself. Well, we appreciate that. And, you know, what's impressive is the kind of research that's going on out there in the entomology labs across the country. And there are folks working on some of this kind of basic science um, that maybe is two or three or four steps away from being able to be used in the field in pest control. And so we're happy to just take some time to kind of dive into this stuff and then try to translate it for the industry. And that's what the NPMA Bug Bites podcast is all about. So, AJ, thank you so much for joining us. We, we really do appreciate it. Um, and, uh, and, and again, thanks, thanks so much. Appreciate that. Thank you all. Okay, well, that's a wrap for another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. Thanks for joining us. And if you found some of the science that we discussed super interesting and you want to take a deeper dive and read some of the articles, head on over to npmapestology.com. That's right. And be sure to like and rate the podcast. And if you've got some feedback, leave it for us. We would love to hear what you have to say about the episodes. And most importantly, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the release of a new episode. We'll see everybody next time. Thanks so much for joining us. MPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science, news, and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in this episode, as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting mpmapestworld.org.